Welcome to Two Bees in a Podcast, brought to you by the Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory at the University of Florida's Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences. It is our goal to advance the understanding of honeybees and beekeeping, grow the beekeeping community, and improve the health of honeybees everywhere. In this podcast, you'll hear research updates, beekeeping management practices discussed, and advice on beekeeping from our resident experts, beekeepers, scientists, and other program guests. Join us for today's program, and thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. Welcome to this week's episode of Two Bees in a Podcast. I'm Sarah Sowers, one of your producers and coordinators of the podcast. I work with Jamie and Amy to bring you episodes every week. You might have heard my voice at the beginning of this season when we put out a little trailer in January talking about what we have coming up ahead. And so this week I'm joining you with a beekeeper talking all about beekeeping in Asia. And I'm hoping you enjoy this episode and look forward to hearing your feedback soon. Among all the places in the world for beekeeping, deep in the tropical forests of Thailand did not immediately come to mind, for me at least. But this past summer, Lauren Roberts, a junior undergraduate entomology major from the University of Florida, traveled over 12 hours by plane to a beautiful place where she learned all about beekeeping practices and honeybees in Asia. Joining me on today's episode is Lauren Roberts. Thank you so much for joining me, Lauren. Thank you so much for having me. Now, Lauren, you and I go way back, and you were one of my first friends at the Honeybee Lab back when I started last January, and you were still an intern. So maybe for our audience, you can introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about how you got into beekeeping and what you're up to now. Uh, Hi, everyone. My name's Lauren Roberts. Um, I'm a third-year entomology and nematology student at the University of Florida. Um, I typically have under five colonies back home. Um, since when I started beekeeping, I was the only one in my family that had any knowledge. Um, and I was in high school and then college. So I would like to get more eventually, but it's just not feasible right now. And then in high school, I fell in love with beekeeping and I started doing some public speaking and educational engagement through the National FFA organization. And then that really sparked my interest in continuing. And so applying to UF and just being under some of the world's best researchers, Dr. Cameron Jack and Dr. Jamie Ellis has really been uh, very influential in into my beekeeping knowledge and really the direction of my career. So two things I know today, I'll be talking mainly about my study abroad experience to Thailand this past summer. So that was definitely the coolest thing I've been able to be a part of while at UF, especially coming in as a COVID freshman. Um, My opportunities was limited my first two years. However, I was able to work uh, on the extension side of the Honeybee Lab as a public engagement technician. And so that experience was really nice because it gave me some face-to-face interaction that I just wasn't getting from my online classes throughout those first two years of COVID and the pandemic and being in a university setting. So definitely working in extension gave me a variety of knowledge and just being able to answer questions every day really sharpened your skills of the beekeeping industry, what problems are being faced. And it really kept me like up to date on the best practices for pest control and just beekeeping in general. 
Lauren, that is just so awesome, and I'm so glad you've gotten the full experience here at the lab. So yeah, let's jump right on in. Please tell me all about your experience in Thailand and why it is you decided to go study beekeeping overseas this past summer. So I had my eyes set on the Thailand study abroad uh, the very first time it was supposed to happen. Obviously, COVID hit, so couldn't happen. Just popping in here. So for those who don't know, study abroad is a kind of experience offered to undergraduate students and sometimes graduate students at the university level who are interested in studying in a different country or learning their trade abroad. So this is kind of the type of program that Lauren was able to do, and she'll talk about it now. So I've been waiting around for two or three years waiting for this study abroad to come up and I'd ask Cameron Jack every semester, hey, what's the what's going on with the Thailand study abroad? And so I was super excited when I was finally able to apply and when it had the green light, like when it was really happening, I was so stoked. Um, I think I booked my plane ticket the next day. Um, and so that experience was a four week long study abroad. And what I really appreciated about the program was that the first two weeks, we were at Burpa University. That's where we were kind of hosted and centralized at. And for the first two weeks, the course was called Honeybees of Asia. So we really studied in depth about the diversity of different honeybee species under uh, Dr. Jamie Ellis and Professor Gunn, who is actually over the department at Burpa University. And so... That was really cool to have the lab, the technical skills, um, which included like doing NOSEMA counts. Um, we studied the different um, morphologies of Apis serrana, Apis floriae, Apis indrenaformis, Apis dorsata, and compared all of that to Apis mellifera. And, you know, that being the species that we were most common with. And so to be able to see all of the different honeybee species of Asia that I will probably never be able to see again in my lifetime was so amazing. Um, and then the second part of the trip, so the latter two weeks, was when we were under Dr. Cameron Jack. And for that part, we actually got to travel to all the different providences in Thailand and what was cool about that is that we were really able to see what the villages were like. We were able to engage with commercial beekeepers who focused on royal jelly production, which is just not something that's very common here in the U.S. And so I appreciate that the program, it was very different. So if a student didn't really enjoy all of the, the lab work in the first two weeks, then they were more than likely going to really enjoy traveling throughout Thailand and having that face-to-face -face with everything that we learned about. So it was a really cool trip. Lauren, that sounds absolutely incredible. Right off the bat, did you notice any differences between your beekeeping practices that you use here in the U.S. and the beekeeping practices that they have there? So there were a lot of differences. Um, now, some of the beekeepers do have Apis mellifera, but more than likely they're going to have Apis serrana colonies simply because um, Apis serrana, they have better defenses against ferrilamite, um, tropolalaps, which is a mite that we don't have at the current moment in the U.S., 
And a lot of researchers are speculating, well, not just speculating, it would be very bad if we were to get AAA laps here in the U.S. just simply due to their reproduction times faster. Um, it'd be very hard to control. So hopefully our inspection people are doing a great job of controlling that. Um, and so seeing Apis serrana colonies were very different because they don't quite have the same buildup and population densities as Apis mellifera. They're smaller colonies and they're, they have a higher tendency to abscond when they're facing environmental issues. Whenever they're overrun by pests and diseases, they're just simply going to leave. So it was a bit different. Um, having the experience in the U.S. and Florida shadowing commercial beekeepers and seeing how large those colonies are and comparing that um, to how small the colonies of Apis serrana are in Thailand. But it makes sense. And that's one of the characteristics that Apis serrana has as a defense mechanism. Um, and so that was one of the things that was a little bit different. When I first opened my first colony, I kind of thought it was a nook, to be honest. And then um, the Thai beekeeper shared with us that this was actually like a very average colony size and that it was healthy. It was looking good. Um, and then another difference was that there was a focus on royal jelly production. And we just don't have that in the U.S. So I really enjoyed being able to meet with the beekeepers who focus on that, it was really interesting. And then a lot of the research that we were familiar with at the Parappa University was actually several of the PhD students were doing studies on propolis collected from stingless bee colonies and using that um, within Apis mellifera and Apis serrana colonies as a way of controlling nosema. And so that was really cool to be able to be inside of a stingless bee colony. That was probably, I can't pick a favorite honeybee that we were able to encounter in Thailand, but the stingless bees were really cool because they can't sting, but they would like pull out your eyebrow hairs for like the hairs on your arms. And I mean, they were determined to pull off hair. Um, so that was kind of cool, but their colonies were really small. Um, and of course, every colony that we were able to encounter, I did taste a little bit of the honey and the stingless bee colonies, their honey was kind of my preference. It was more of like a vinegary taste, um, kind of comparing that to like balsamic vinegar. It was really good. I definitely bought three bottles and brought it home. That makes me so happy to hear because it actually reminds me of some of my travel from last summer as well um, and my experience with bees. I was studying abroad in Mexico and we visited a stingless bee colony with um, some classmates and it was a family-owned native plant nursery and garden. And we learned a lot about Mayan culture and, you know, the importance of honey. And so we you know, they really valued these bees and so did I, and their honey was absolutely delicious. And so I'm, you know, somewhat familiar with bees working at the lab and helping in the apiary, even though I'm not 
a beekeeper. Um, so I knew these bees were safe and I trusted them and I really enjoyed interacting with them. Um, but my peers had this irrational fear that they would just get stung. And if I'm remembering correctly, I think these were the Melipona biche um, species and they were just super small. And there was this little guard bee, you know, standing at the opening of each, each frame or of each box. And so I'm wondering, did you have similar experiences in Thailand with these stingless colonies or notice anything um, different in their behavior between Apis mellifera, you know, and, and those bees? For sure. So I guess to go down a line, um, the stingless bee, they were pretty docile. I'm, I'm sure um, you had that same experience. But whenever you do start pulling apart their colony, looking inside, the best thing I can compare it to was that it kind of looked like a bumblebee colony for those who have seen um, what that looks like, especially like a commercial bumblebee colony um, in terms of there wasn't the honeycomb structure. It was more cups that held brood and honey. Um, and so they're defending that, right? And so they're going to be pulling out your hair, whatever hair they can. Um, typically the guys that had the really bushy eyebrows, <laughs> they kind of targeted them and started pulling out their eyebrows or their eyelashes. Um, and then on the flip side of that, the most aggressive, not aggressive, the most offensive colony was actually on the first day of class we were led into a coconut grove by a bee hunter that Professor Gunn had a lot of experience working with. And so we were taken very far back into the coconut grove to find this colony that he had been, that he'd spotted um, beforehand. And so as soon as he shimmied up the tree with his makeshift rope tied around his feet and started smoking, the bees immediately started swarming us we were all in protective gear, thankfully, but uh, we all did get pretty stung. And that was probably the most defensive Apis dorsata colony that Professor Gunn had sampled before. So I just think that was kind of just the luck of the draw. And then Apis floria, which is the dwarf, one of the dwarf honeybees, their sting was initially sharp, but it quickly, it quickly subdued. It wasn't that bad. And then Apis serrana is the most familiar in terms of size, um, nest structure of Apis mellifera, which is, you know, the honeybee that we keep here in the U.S. And they're a little bit more aggressive or defensive. Um, and so by far, the dorsata colony and the floria colony was the most engaged and had the most defensive behavior towards us. But that's also partly because they're open nesters. So they don't nest in a colony. They have one comb and it's branching off of a tree limb or some sort of structure. So they have a lot more to defend. I'm sorry you got stung, but that is just so interesting. Yeah, it was it was really beneficial to know all the behaviors and kind of what to expect in the first two weeks of class. We did a lot of the labs and the readings and the assignments. So we got very familiar um, with the defensive behavior, um, everything you can think of in terms of the different honeybee species that we then encountered within the second half of the class. And something that I didn't know 
And I actually learned it from reading one of the books that Professor Gunn had written herself was that Apis dorsata actually is the only honeybee species known right now that pollinates at night. So initially I thought Apis dorsata, the giant honeybee, would be the coolest and would be my favorite honeybee after the trip. But after the first day of class, all this getting stung was not that pleasant. So uh, my favorite honeybee species, if I had to pick one, would probably be Apis florea, which is the dwarf honeybee. And, and it was really cool because when we were traveling um, during the second half, half of our trip to different providences in the van, we would stop every time on the major highways when there was a beekeeper that was selling Apis Floria, like would just cut the comb. And so it's just a cut comb. Um, and we were able to buy it and like just eat the honey, like in the van. It was so cool, comb and all. And a lot of the times the comb was still attached to the branch. And so that's kind of a common thing when you see it in Thailand on the side of major highways. Or not just only major, but really any highly trafficked road um, was to see a beekeeper with their beautiful display of Apis Floria comb that we could purchase. That is just totally fascinating. And honestly, Lauren, I wish we had that kind of system here in the States. Can you imagine how yummy that would be to just try different honey everywhere we go. I mean, I know we have some beekeepers that do little stands and we heard from Virginia Webb a couple of weeks ago, um, but that is just so cool. And, you know, speaking of somewhat cultural differences, I was wondering if there was anything else you picked up on while you were there in that, you know, the ways honeybees play a role in, you know, the lifestyle or food or even, you know, when it comes to diet. I know you and me eat honey pretty much almost every day, but I don't think a lot of other Americans can say the same. So do you find that more people in Thailand were more in touch with agriculture and where their food comes from? Sure, that's a great question. So I would first say that there's kind of a movement right now in the U.S., a, a small movement, to use honey in more medicinal purposes. However, that kind of conflicts with Western medicine. But in Thailand, you see that being used a lot more. It's much more common to see propolis being sold in the grocery stores to be used for anything um, like antimicrobial properties or like for brushing your teeth, chewing, like a substitute for chewing gum. And so you see a greater variety of bee products being used, but I partly think that's probably attributed to the people of Thailand just using every part of whatever they're consuming in a really useful and sustainable way and comparing that to the U.S. attitude of, okay, let's only use this portion and throw the rest away or just not use it. I think it comes down to the U.S. just being a little bit more wasteful and not quite as sustainable. In terms of the education of people in Thailand upon like pollinators and honeybees specifically, I, I don't really know if I, I was only there for four weeks. And so I'm not quite certain what the general public knows. However, I think it's safe to assume that there's a greater connection between 
probably where your food comes from, just because so many people are involved with making their own food, growing their own food. So I think that in itself leads for a greater appreciation of pollinators and the roles that they play, especially honeybees. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think resourcefulness is definitely something that, you know, we're starting to think about here in the U.S. because we just see how important and beneficial uh, it can be in other places like Thailand. And I study sustainability here at UF, and I think, you know, there's definitely merit in in being resourceful and making making the world a little bit of a better place by doing so. And so, you know, shifting gears just a little bit, and this might be more of a a question about your personal experience, but was there anything that was super unexpected um, while you were abroad or any funny moments that you'd like to share from your trip? What was really like surprising to me would definitely be, it was week three. So I was kind of starting to get a little homesick, but I was still living off the mango sticky rice. So I could stick around for a little bit longer. And then we went to Khao Sumai National Park. Um, in the hopes of seeing Asian elephants and tigers in the wild, neither of which we saw, but it's okay. We saw plenty of macaques and we also saw land leeches, which to my knowledge beforehand, leeches were only in like bodies of water, um, but not this. We were hiking through a trail in the national park with a tour guide and beforehand in the gift shop, they sold leech socks, which I saw, but I just didn't think anything of it. Like, okay, leech socks. I thought it was just like a ploy to get kids to buy socks. I don't know. Um, well, it turns out I should have bought a pair and the land leeches like scurry. I don't, I don't know how to explain it, but they like, oh, it's the weirdest thing to see them move across land. And like, you could see them kind of scurrying towards us on the trail and several of us got the leeches on us. I think one woman had a leech in her belly button. My roommate had one in her armpit and they don't transmit any like deadly diseases that we know of right now, but that just wasn't enough security for me. So day two, I did purchase the leech socks and um, I have a little bit of PTSD. If I see a blade of grass move, I'm like, my eyes directly go towards that. I'm like, oh my gosh, is that a land leech? Thankfully, we don't have them here. And to my knowledge, it's only in that national park that 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 any land leeches, specifically that species, resides in. So I was not prepared for, for that. Oh my goodness. I was not prepared for that story. And I honestly don't know what I would have done in that situation. Yeah, instead of like enjoying heck, we could have seen some Asian elephants or tigers, but my whole class, we were looking at the ground on the forest floor for land leeches. So maybe there were a couple surrounding us and we just didn't see them. But the land leeches had all of our attention and for good reason. Lauren, after hearing that, I am just so glad that you made it back home safe. And so did your entire group. Um, and you just have these awesome stories to tell. So as we wrap up, I want to know, would you go back? And do you think you have any advice for people who want to try beekeeping abroad or visiting Thailand specifically? For sure. I definitely think it's worth everyone's while 
to go overseas and to see something that you're very familiar with in the U.S. overseas in a very different light. I think it made me think more about what is sustainability in the apicultural industry and what lessons can we take just in general and apply it to our lives back home. That might be being more grateful for the simple things in life that honestly, at the end of the day, are the most important. If I had to do it over again and I, I planned better, I probably would have planned to see more in the city of Chiang Mai, which is in the Northern Providence. That was my favorite city. And a lot of my classmates also said so. And there's actually a um, Asian elephant refuge park there that tourists are able to come and feed the elephants. So I would have chosen to do that, but unfortunately, the time span, I believe we were in Chiang Mai on like a Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And we had like several trips planned with visiting beekeepers there. So it just, we just didn't have enough time. And the refuge park was actually closed on the Sunday. So I would definitely spend a little bit more time in Chiang Mai. Don't overlook it in, instead of um, overseeing some of the southern islands, which were really cool. But being a Florida girl, like I'm very familiar with beaches and keys and that area. So I would have chosen to do a little bit more research ahead of time and spend more time in Chiang Mai. Um, I love elephants. So anything involving Asian elephants, right up my alley. That is just so inspiring to hear. And you know, it's so cool that you were able to do this trip and learn so much in such a short amount of time. Absolutely. I just being completely submersed and having so many world-renowned honeybee experts right there. Um, one of the USDA researchers who focuses on AAA laps, which I mentioned earlier, is a mite that we don't have here in the U.S. And I hope though we never get them in the U.S. because it would be very decimating to our honeybee colonies. But Dr. Samuel Ramsey, he was there and it was really cool to, to be able to actually like count brood on a frame and see AAA laps scurry across. I had a little bit of a competition with Dr. Ellis um, as to who could find the first AAA laps. And after about like 15 frames of just looking at brood and uncapping and trying to see AAA laps scurry across the frame. Um, I didn't see anything. And then Dr. Ellis was pretty mad about it. Dr. Ellis found the first AAA laps, but then shortly after I wasn't giving up and I found the second. Um, so it was really cool to be able to see everything in person. Um, and yeah, these are experiences that I will always talk about. Um, I will never forget and it's super cool whenever I'm like reading um, any sort of honeybee biology books for any of my classes, or I think I watched the the new Lion King once I got home. I have a two-year-old brother, so I was watching it with him. And in one of these scenes, there's actually Apis dorsata colony, I believe, or Labarosa. I'm not sure. One of the giant honeybees. Um, in one of the scenes of the movies, and it's uh, a honeybee facing off the edge of a cliff. 
And so it was cool to be able to be like, oh my gosh, I've seen that in person before, not on a cliff, but about the same colony. It was still an open nester. So even if it was Apis labrosa, I still count it. That's just such a beautiful full circle moment. And I'm so thankful that you shared your experiences with us today. I appreciate that because before speaking with you today, I actually read through all my journal entries and really refreshed my memories of Thailand, even though it was just this past May and June, that it's a really cool way to keep your study abroad experiences alive. Lauren, it was truly a pleasure to have you on Two Bees in a Podcast, and I'm just so glad we got to reconnect and learn all about your trip to Thailand. It just sounds totally, totally incredible and immersive, and um, thank you so much for sharing with us your experiences today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It's always exciting to be able to keep all these memories alive. It's everybody's favorite game show, Stomp the Chomp. All right, we are back at that question and answer segment. Jamie, how's it going? It's going well, and I know our listeners can't know this right now, but we're actually at the American Beekeeping Federation Annual Conference in 2023 in January in Jacksonville. Heck yeah! All right, so we're going to be answering some questions that were asked of us, and I'm a bit nervous because I don't ever sit beside you in the podcast. I'm a little nervous. So weird. All right, so I don't actually, know what to do with my hands. <laughs> That's what I got to sit on. For the next two or three episodes, our Stump the Chop is going to be live from Jacksonville. We're going to split it up into a couple of different segments. So I'm really excited to, to do this. All right. So, Jamie, are you ready? We've got three questions. Are you ready? I think so. Okay. I have to be, right? Yep. So I'll start with an easy one. All right. Who was, what was the name of your seventh grade teacher? Which one? I mean, I wasn't in seventh grade multiple times. I'm not trying to imply that. <laughs> I'm just saying I had multiple teachers over seventh grade, within seventh grade. But I, but I know where this question's going. I had a, a teacher named Miss Wilcher who was very instrumental in the development of my beekeeping enterprise. All right. Can so you ask that, a question. We'll see if that's what it is. Is that how you got started in beekeeping? Okay. So what happened is when I was around um, eight years old, I got interested in bees. Actually, when I was in kindergarten, a beekeeper came to my, my class and was talking about bees and gave us a date ant publication that stayed in my toy box for a couple of years. And a couple of years later, I found it. And there was a guy close to my elementary school who kept bees and we would ride by the beehive every day. So around eight years old, I got interested and my parents wouldn't let me get bees because they're not beekeepers in my family. So it was a new enterprise for us. So I kind of worked on them for, for about four or so years and I had a seventh grade teacher, Ms. Wilcher, who we were in um, a biology class and she would, somehow bees came up and I raised my hand and said, well, you know, I'm very interested in keeping bees, but my parents won't get a beehive. And she said, well, I have an uncle in North Carolina who's a beekeeper. If I get you an empty beehive from him, Will you promise to fill it? And of course, no 12, 13 year old can make that promise because you need your parents' permission. But I made the promise anyway, and she sure enough showed up at my parents' house with an empty beehive with combs that were already fully pulled. And my parents kind of got backed into a corner or so. That was my first beehive. I, uh, my, dad, my dad found a mentor for me and I got bees put into it and I've loved it absolutely ever since. So that's. That's a nutshell kind of a, of how I got started in bees and beekeeping a long, long time ago. Okay, but wait. Okay. I met someone at this conference who just ran into her on the way down 
from up north. Yeah, it's, it's like a totally crazy story. He actually, I, we were just at the foundation luncheon meeting, Foundation for the Preservation of Honeybees, and I'm digging in my pocket, which you can't see on the podcast, but you guys can see live. But this individual at a welcome center, my former teacher is retired and is working at a North Carolina, volunteering at a North Carolina welcome center. And he stopped and said he was coming down here for a bee conference. He's like, well, I know a beekeeper in Florida. His name is Jamie. And he's like, well, is it Jamie Ellis? And she's like, yeah. And so she wrote me a letter to send with him to me at this bee conference. I haven't seen her since I left seventh grade. And that wasn't yesterday. So I've got this letter from her, including her cell phone number. So I'm going to give her a phone call. Uh, it was really a neat story. I got to thank uh, Joe for doing that. Joe, I don't know if you're out there right now, but there he is, the Joe. That guy out there made this question possible. So it's no coincidence. I've got I to call Miss Wilshire when I get home. <laughs> Are you going to read the note? Um, no, you don't have to. I have to, to read that. the note? No, you don't have to do that. Hi, Jamie. <laughs> no, that's it. Okay. <laughs> but, you know, I, I am going to ask her who her uncle in North Carolina was. Any North Carolina beekeepers here? You know, I keep wondering, it's like someday am I going to meet the person who gave my teacher the hive to give to me to start this whole shebang? That's a crazy we'll see wild story. Happened. All right. I hope all the questions are that easy. They're not. That was the easiest one. Okay. All right. <laughs> the next question we have for the Q&A today, why don't beekeepers keep hygienic bees? But let's go ahead and start with what are hygienic bees? So I keep hearing that. Everybody keeps talking about hygienic bees. They keep saying we want hygienic bees. They keep talking about it. But I, can you explain just a little bit more about what that even means and why someone would want hygienic bees? So I would say the first question, why don't beekeepers keep hygienic bees? Frankly, Amy, if I could figure out what beekeepers were thinking <laughs> ever, I'd be the richest bee scientist on planet Earth. Right, beekeepers? Right, we can't ever figure out what it is you guys will want to do and, and don't want to do. But so let's just answer your second question first. Hygienic behavior is the ability of worker bees to detect problems in, the, in brood and remove or inspect that brood for that problem. For example, there's a lot of diseases or pests that occur under capped brood cells. So a worker bee might be able to detect a problem within that capped brood cell. She'll uncap it. She'll abort the developing bee within. And it's one of those social immunity mechanisms that they use to deal with diseases and pests in their brood. And so this is a trait that can be selected for. I know a lot of you beekeepers out there might use hygienic bees, but I think we can broaden that question to be slightly more um, encompassing. Why, why, why aren't selected stocks popular generally? And, and, and all of you have queens in your beehives, right? And there's lots and lots of queen producers. In fact, there's probably queen producers in this room. And I would argue that the industry has been slow to widespread adopt disease and pest resistant bees, largely because there's a high queen turnover rate and because of the mating behavior of bee queens and that if you lose your purchased queen who was $50, you know, two months after putting her in that hive, the next queen who is produced from the offspring, she's going to go and mate with any of the drones available out there, right? <laughs> You can't control who your kids bring home. They just bring home who they bring home. Well, when a queen goes out, when a virgin queen goes out to mate, you can't control who she mates with. So you can invest heavily in the, the use of any type of resistant or tolerant stock, but you have to stay on top of that by replacing those queens yearly in order to ensure that you've got that stock in your colonies all the time. So I think a lot of the resistant stocks that are available are tremendous resources for beekeepers. But I think it's one of those things that will only catch hold if really well if we all do it. 
Because I feel like if we all do it, then what we're flooding the U.S. with is, is disease and pest tolerant or resistant stock. It's, it's part of the solution for the issues that we're facing kind of in the B world, in all my right. opinion. So the third question, actually the little related. So someone's asking, are we putting too much emphasis on breeding mite resistant queens and losing sight that we need strains that are good honey producers? What are your thoughts on that? So I think that's a good question because oftentimes in breeding programs, especially kind of in research breeding programs, there's an emphasis on a trait that we are trying to augment. We want bees to be more hygienic, right? We want them to be able to detect diseases and pests in the brood and do all that stuff that I just talked about. Or maybe there's the, you know, Purdue ankle miters. That's the famous bee that will chew on the varroa. So we, we select for a trait, hygienic behavior, grooming behavior, whatever. But obviously there is, you can't just have disease and pest resistant bees because just because bees are alive doesn't mean they're going to be productive, right? So the best breeding programs and the scientists and the bee breeders know this, the best breeding programs are those that incorporate the traits of interest that help you with disease and pest resistance, but also focus very heavily on production traits and other behavioral traits. For example, I would rather have a Varroa resistant bee that's a really good honey producer that's also nice, right? So, so a lot of people, yeah, a lot of people want to breed for uh, gentleness. And so I've seen breeding programs that score bees on multiple traits, gentleness, amount of brood, hygienic behavior, uh, productivity, and they assign weighted scores to those things to try to push all of those scores up into bees that are um, holistically better. That's a big fancy word. Yeah, so a lot of you also, you know, a podcast, the podcast is just part of what we do at the University of Florida. We also have lots of other programs that we have. A lot of them are online. They're completely online. We have a master beekeeper program. Um, I'm kind of laughing. I'm like pitching our programs now, but we do have a master beekeeper program and we have some bee learning short courses. So if you don't want to commit to the online master beekeeper program, we have smaller courses. And I think one of those courses is looking at the different reasons and the different strains of bees that you would want. So depending on what you're looking for, we have information on that. And these are all pre-recorded. Anybody from around the world can take any of those classes. And so that is available to you. So again, part of what we do is to try to just make all that available to you. Um, at all times and anytime you want to take it, you can be sitting on your couch, watching TV, hanging out on the weekend and taking our class. <laughs> or listening to us. I tell you, one of the things about doing podcasts, I'm going to tell two stories. I'll tell one story because um, someone told me a story that was funny here this week. Um, but I won't tell you that story because I don't, uh, don't want to make it too personal. But it's funny how people uh, listen to us to recognize our voices. There was a gentleman who was telling me last year, not, not at this meeting, but last year, he said, yeah, my wife really likes to listen to your podcast, but she listens to you in the bathroom. So I hear her in the shower listening to another guy talking. And he's like, uh, it's like, I have to remind myself, oh, she's just listening to the podcast. There's not some other guy in there. I was like, that's one of my funny podcast stories. <laughs> that's funny. So if, if, there's a, if your wife's in the bathroom listening to someone, it's, it's possibly me, but I'm being recorded. I'm not actually there. So. All right. Okay. Cut that part out, Amy. Cut that part out. I'm like, I don't even know how to end that episode. Like right now, end it like right now. All right, so that is the end of that segment of the Q&A. Now you all know how it works. That's right. Thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. For more information and resources on today's episode, check out the Honeybee Research Lab website at ufhoneybee.com. If you have questions you want answered on air, email them to us at honeybee at ifas.com. 
www.ufl.edu or message us on social media at UF Honeybee Lab on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. This episode was hosted by Jamie Ellis and Amy Boo. This podcast is produced and edited by Amy Boo and Sarah Sowers. Thanks for listening and see you next week.